Well, good morning, everybody. If you got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 12. We're going to read verses 27 to 43. While you're going there, let me just uh, remind you, uh, I knew Mike wouldn't do this, but uh, we have an opportunity next Sunday after this service to, um, to give thanks to the Lord for Mike and Whitney Palumbo as they uh, get ready to uh, follow God's call down to Georgia. Uh, we're thankful for their ministry. We're thankful for their lives, their friendship. And so we, we have an opportunity to express that thanks to them. And so uh, there are instructions here for what to bring and where to be. And so I would encourage you, if you've been blessed by their ministry, and, and uh, that's probably going to be about all of us, I would encourage you to make plans to attend that luncheon following the 11 o'clock service next Sunday. Well, as we come near to the end of our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, one thing has been clear throughout, and that is that our God is a God of the second chance. He is not a one-and-done kind of God. In our series, we have seen God return His exiled people to the land. We've seen Him rebuild a broken people and city. And we've seen Him reform an ignorant people. In in each instance, our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God has kept faith. He has kept His covenant promises in spite of their failings, in spite of their need to be returned, in spite of their need to be rebuilt, in spite of their need to be reformed. He did not abandon them. And my friends, He will not abandon you. He is committed to His purposes, which means that He is committed to His people. Now, how does our passage this morning show us God's ongoing commitment to his people, both then and now? And more importantly, what should our response be to his commitment? Let's look at our passage to find out. Again, Nehemiah chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And then I brought the leaders of Judah up unto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them, At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David. At the ascent of the wall above the house of David, 
to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half of the officials with me. And the priest Eliakim, Maaseiah, Minamin, Micaiah, Elianai, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with trumpets, and Maaseiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Yehonan, Malchijah, Elam, and Azer. And the singer sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do ask that through your spirit you would speak to us. You would speak words of truth for your word is truth. And so Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart. Lord, that you would unstop our ears where we don't understand or even don't believe. Lord, that you would make us into a people of joy. We pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Well, this week I received a, a wonderful gift. I was given some scanned papers from the late Dr. Graham Gilmer. Now, Dr. Gilmer served as pastor of Rivermont from 1923 to 1953. And among these papers was an early history of the church. And in this history, I found a section pertaining to the construction of this building. An unnamed historian wrote, Construction of this building was begun in August 1924, and the first service held in the church on October 11, 1925. The cornerstone was laid June 23, 1925, on which occasion the former pastor, Reverend E.M. Delaney, delivered an impressive address. Dr. J.D. Paxton offered the invocation. Mr. James R. Gilliam Jr. placed the contents of the cornerstone and the Reverend W.T. Palmer made the closing prayer. The church was later dedicated on December 13, 1925 with appropriate ceremonies. Now, there are two things that intrigue me about this brief history. First, what on earth did they put in that cornerstone? I'm curious enough to want to dig that thing out and see what they put in there. But more importantly, what did that dedication service look like? What what was its purpose on that day? Well, the dedication service was a setting apart service. They were setting the building apart for a a particular use, um, even committing themselves to that use. In that service, they set apart this building as a perpetual place of worship, discipleship, fellowship, an outreach for the gathered church. And that kind of dedication service is in view here in our text this morning. Nehemiah had gathered city leaders and officials, the Levites and priests and singers and musicians. And he gathered them all for a special service to set apart the newly rebuilt wall, to set it apart for its intended use. 
And the wall was to provide protection for the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. That much is obvious. But in doing so, it also provided flourishing for that city. You see, with protection, people lived, worshipped, worked, and shopped without fear. Now, just three months earlier, the wall of Jerusalem had been a pile of rubble. The wall was still in ruin, which meant the people were exposed and vulnerable. And from the time the first exiles returned until now, it had been about a century. And throughout that time, the people had experienced deprivation and opposition from their enemies. They had no protection, which meant they could not easily flourish. But let's not forget, a walled city had not been a guarantee of protection either. The memory of Jerusalem falling to the Babylonians still lingered. The destruction of the temple and city was part of their national conscience. They had learned that a people living in a walled city with no heart for God were just as vulnerable. They couldn't truly be protected or flourished. And that's not just true for physical walls that we might erect. But any kind of walls we erect. When we look to anything other than God to protect us and flourish us, we are not safe. We are vulnerable. You see, a wall of wealth cannot protect us. Just four years after this sanctuary and building was built, America plunged into the worst economic depression in history. Wealth that had been built up over generations was immediately lost. By 1933, when the Great Depression reached its lowest point, some 15 million Americans were unemployed and nearly half of the country's banks had failed. A wall of wealth could not protect. But neither could a wall of health or fitness protect us. It can't keep us from getting sick or dying. The more we try, in fact, the more it can become a cruel master that takes over your life. It can't really protect you. The world found that out the hard way when COVID-19 infected the world three years ago. And it's far from over as we continue to see different strains and long-term effects from COVID. And you know what else? A wall of relationships can't protect us either. They can't protect us from loneliness or being alone. And in fact, the more we try to hold on to relationships, the more often we push people away. You see, it doesn't matter what kind of walls that we erect, be they wealth or health or relationships or anything else. They cannot truly give us what we want, what we were made for, which was a flourishing relationship with our creator, sustainer, and Savior. And that was certainly in the mind of our Rivermont forefathers and mothers on that December day. As they worshiped and celebrated the dedication of this building, they felt joy. Joy certainly in completing a year-long building project. And joy in having more space to accommodate a growing congregation. But I think most of all, joy in the work of building up men, women, and children in Christ for generations to come. If you stop and think about it, you and I today are the fulfillment of that joy. Think about it. 
Our presence here today was part of their joy on that day in 1925. And the same was certainly true for those in Jerusalem, as they too were filled with joy. Now, did you notice anything interesting about verse 43, which is the last verse I read? Look at it again. Nehemiah summarizes the dedication service in this way. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The woman and the women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. In that one verse, Nehemiah mentions the word joy five times. And if that seems like a lot of joy to you, guess what? You're right, it is. It's like drilling for water in a desert and hitting a deep reservoir and the pressure shoots that water high in the air and it just begins to rain down on everything. This dedication service had hit a deep spring of joy in the people that cannot be contained. It is overflowing joy. Well, what gave them such joy? And more importantly, how can you and I have such joy? Well, when I read our text, I I do so with a tinge of envy. I'd love to have been in that moment to experience their joy, to watch the tears of joy fall down weary and worn faces, to hear voices and instruments echoing down from those walls, praise and psalms. Their joy had been 170 years in the making. Seven years of exile in Babylonia and almost a hundred years of struggle to return and rebuild the temple and city walls. That joy was costly. It was expensive, yet it was made possible because God had become their source of joy again. You see, when their forefathers and mothers had lived inside Jerusalem's walls, he was not their joy. That was in large part because of kings like Manasseh. Under their influence, the people sought joy in false gods. False gods who promised freedom but delivered bondage. These gods did not give joy, but they robbed their people of joy. And though the people had forsaken their true joy, God remained faithful to them. He was committed to them and He never stopped being their God. And the exile proved it. You see, God disciplined his people by stripping of them everything that had become their source of joy. Their temple, their wall, their status, their comfort. He did that so that he could replace those counterfeit joys with a true joy, a greater joy, a joy in himself. The writer of Hebrews affirms God's faithfulness in his discipline when he writes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Why does God discipline us? It's not so that he can take something bad away from us, but rather it's so that he can give something good to us, so he can give us more of himself because he is the source of our joy. And I think that's what these worshipers were experiencing at this dedication service. They were overcome with joy by all the ways that God had shown his faithfulness to them. 
They sang of the steadfast and unending love of the Lord. They sang of God's unending and new every morning kind of mercy. They sang of His faithfulness that was as deep as it was wide. Truly God had made them rejoice with great joy at His faithfulness. And what's true for them is also true for us. For God has made us to rejoice with great joy as we consider His faithfulness to us. The good news is that we don't have to wait for a once in a generation dedication service. Every week we gather together as God's people for worship. We gather to rejoice with great joy over God's faithfulness to us. And if you're here this morning and you don't feel much joy, I would encourage you to do one of two things. The first is to ask yourself, who or what is your source of joy? And if it is anything other than God, if it is anyone other than God, confess and repent of it and ask God to be your true source of joy. But what if he already is your true source of joy, but joy for you right now feels elusive? Well, I would ask the Lord to help you identify the ways that he has been faithful to you and to your family and even to this church family over the years. You might even consider making a list to help you remember. And then you just add to that list more examples and more examples and more examples as they come to mind. And as you see more and more of these examples of his faithfulness to you, he will be faithful to grow that joy in you. But something else stands out to me in verse 43. Nehemiah says that they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. And by great, I take it to mean a large number of sacrifices. Well, why does that stand out to me? Because sacrifices entail death. Death of animals for any number of sacrifices or offerings. That hardly seems joy-inducing until we consider their purpose. You see, as sinners, we needed a way to find acceptance before a holy God. And in the Old Testament, the way that was provided was through sacrifice of an acceptable substitute. An animal that could be offered in the place of the sinner. And through the laying on of hands over that animal, the curse of sin would transfer from the sinner to the animal and would be borne by that animal. And only then was the worshiper forgiven. And their joy of their salvation restored. And this kind of joy was a costly one. Forgiveness is like that. Consider the person who sins against you and asks for your forgiveness. What must you do to grant that forgiveness? Well, in a sense, you must die to the pain and hurt the sinner caused you so that they don't have to. You absorb the real cost of their sin to you. And in doing so, they are set free from the burden of their sin. Friends, forgiveness is not cheap. It is costly. And with each sacrifice, the sins of the people were forgiven and joy was given. But of course, there was a flaw in the sacrificial system, wasn't there? You see, those sacrifices had to be made continually, day 
after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. But more than that, these sacrifices were symbolic. They were anticipatory of Christ's actual once and for all sacrifice that would come 450 years later. In Hebrews 10, we read, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so our joy is heightened knowing that the whole of our sin has been forgiven through Christ. He has effectively paid the awful price of our sin so that there's nothing left to pay. He was crushed for our sin and is seated now in glory, seated in the power at the right hand of God. And he has left us a gift, a gift that he first gave to his disciples in the upper upper room. He gave his church a meal that we could share together, a meal that wouldn't just memorialize his death, but would grow and feed our joy and faith in him that would strengthen our obedience and service to His mission. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper and not merely observe the Lord's Supper. Now I confess, I didn't always see the Lord's Supper as a celebration. Uh, Growing up in my church, I saw it as a painful reminder. It was a gut-wrenching reminder of my sin and how far I fell short. It was a reminder that my sins nailed Jesus to the cross And that thought alone caused me guilt and shame. So why couldn't I see that the Lord's Supper was meant for my joy and not guilt? It's because I was trying to live a good enough life not to need Jesus. I was trying to stand on my own two spiritual feet and the Lord's Supper was a reality check that I couldn't. I needed Jesus more than I could possibly imagine. I needed, as Hebrews says, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, friends, Jesus didn't just die for us. He didn't die for us begrudgingly. He didn't die for us with disappointment on his face. He endured the cross, despising its shame for joy. The joy of completing the work his father sent him to accomplish. The joy of reconciling a wayward people back to God. The joy of turning unrighteous and self-righteous people into sons and daughters of the king. He did it all for joy. There was joy in his sacrifice. And finally, the last sentence of verse 43 also stands out to me. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Their joy in the Lord was so great that the sound of that joy traveled far and wide. Now, if you've been to a Tech or UVA or Liberty football game, you've experienced this. Maybe you got to the game late or you had to leave the game early. And on your way back to the car, someone scores or there's a fumble and the crowd erupts in this triumphant cheer. There is this unison of happiness and glory. 
And you know you've missed something special. And you want to be part of that celebration. In verses 31 through 42, Nehemiah gives us a visual of this celebration. Having assembled the Levite singers and the musicians, he places them all along the city wall in two groups. Ezra, who led the people in building the temple, led one group. While Nehemiah, who led the people in rebuilding the wall, led the other group. Ezra and his group of singers and musicians surrounded the south wall, while Nehemiah's group surrounded the north wall. And together they encircled the entire city with praise to the Lord in surround sound. The voices and instruments rang out joyfully as they dedicated the wall, a wall that took only 52 days to build, a wall that had struck fear in the heart of Judah's enemies. Why? Because Judah's enemies perceived, the text says, that this work had been accomplished with the help of their God. And it had. But there was an even greater work of God that Judah's enemies couldn't see. For the work of God wasn't simply in these stones and mortar. The work of God was in renewed hearts and minds. It was in a transformed people, a rebuilt people, a trusting people. It's fitting then that the choirs and the musicians press a process down from the walls and they are led by Ezra and Nehemiah into the temple to the place where God's presence dwelt with his people. For the people had learned that walls alone could not save them from their enemies. Only God could save them. Yes, the wall they were dedicating to God meant physical protection from their enemies. But it was also to be a perpetual reminder of God's spiritual protection for that generation and generations to come. I think one of the reasons Nehemiah said the women and children also rejoiced in verse 43 is for this reason, is that the children present in that service would remember that service for years to come. It would be an indelible reminder that God and God alone is our refuge and strength. He alone is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Salvation comes from Him alone. The children would have remembered that. Did you know that Rivermont has a wall to protect and flourish us as well? Of course, it's not a physical wall. It's a spiritual wall. Or as the writer of Hebrews calls it, a great cloud of witnesses. For God has placed pastors and elders, Sunday school teachers and Bible study leaders and family and friends around you. To what end? That in pointing us to Jesus, we will be able to lay aside every weight or obstacle to our growth in Christ. To lay aside the sin which clings to us so closely. To help us run with endurance the race, the Christian life that is set before us. But friends, that wall isn't for us to hide behind. Remember the sound of Jerusalem's joy was heard far away. God would have our joy in Him be heard in the Rivermont neighborhood and beyond. Many of our neighbors don't know Christ. And they are as vulnerable as a city without physical walls. They are vulnerable to the attack of our true enemy. An enemy who would love nothing more than for sin to suffocate the joy of our neighbors. As in Hezekiah's day, 
God is calling us to expand the length of our spiritual wall. To push out that wall into the neighborhood so that they might experience protection and flourishing in the Lord. May we as a church be willing to expand our walls. May we fulfill the joy of those who dedicated this building almost a hundred years ago. May the sound of our joy be heard in the Rivermont neighborhood and may it be music to their ears. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do ask boldly that our joy might be heard far away, that we might find our source of joy in you, that we might celebrate the sacrifice that Christ has made for us who endured the cross for joy's sake. Lord, that 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 joy would radiate from this place, from our lives, that others in this city who live lives as though there are no walls of protection or flourishing around them, that they might know the Lord Jesus Christ who offers protection and flourishing. We pray this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.